0: Welcome to the Theology on Tap Chattanooga podcast. In each episode, we feature a different lecture given by a writer, scholar, or public intellectual. Each of these talks explores the intersection between theology and culture, and how theology can help better guide us toward the common good of society. These talks are given live at our monthly Theology on Tap events at the Camp House in Chattanooga, Tennessee. For more information and to find out when our next live event is, check out our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash Theology on Tap Chattanooga. Now, here is this week's episode. We hope you enjoy listening. Hey everyone, Matt Busby, host of Theology on Tap Chattanooga here, and I just have an announcement and a couple notes before we dive into this lecture with Dr. Preston Hill. Uh, First of all, our final Theology on Tap of the spring semester is coming up on May 9th, and that is going to be with author Lindsay Medford and her new book, My Body and Other Crumbling Empires which really explores um, the the topic of chronic illness and faith. Uh, So I would invite you guys out to that May 9th uh, with author Lindsay Medford. And uh, it is a book release party, so hopefully there'll be books available for you to purchase on the evening. And then um, that will start, doors are at 6.30 p.m. The lecture will start at 7 p.m. And then just a couple notes, you know, uh, during this lecture, we had some technical difficulties uh, with Dr. Hill's slideshow and his microphone, and uh, that's just going to come up a couple times as you listen. You'll, you'll notice references to those things, uh, so just so you're aware of that. Um, but more importantly, this particular Theology on Tap happened... Just a few days after a tragic death within our own community here, um, and then it was the next day. I believe it was the next day after the tragic school shooting that happened in Nashville, um, just back at the beginning of March. And so, um, Dr. Hill really sets the tone at the very beginning of this episode, at the very beginning of this lecture. Uh, but if you don't, it'll, it might seem a little odd if you don't understand that context. And you know, on the on the evening, I was we, we were pretty adamant about the fact that. You know, if this topic for Theology on Tap had been anything else, we would have just postponed it uh, in, in light of the tragedies that had just happened. But because this lecture is about trauma in the church, we just felt it was so appropriate, um, not only to not only for the topic and, and, and how much it's needed for the church right now, but also just to gather in community um, and just be able to hear uh, the good news that I believe this lecture is. Uh, so with those two notes in mind, um, let me give you i want to read dr preston hill's bio and then we're going to dive into this lecture with dr hill preston hill is the assistant professor of integrative theology at Richmond graduate university where he serves as the co-chair of integration and the director of the doctor of ministry program his doctoral research offers the first book-length study of christ's descent into hell and the theology of john calvin His current research focuses on Reformation theology, science, and mental health. His latest publications include Dawn of Sunday, The Trinity and Trauma-Safe Church, and a forthcoming volume entitled Trauma Theology, Perspectives on Christ and the Wounds that Remain. Friends, I give you Dr. Preston Hill and his lecture, The Trinity and Trauma-Safe Churches.
1: Thank you all so much for having me. It's so, so great to see, like, really friendly faces. Um, I'm just endeared to all of you. Um, okay, yeah, and we are going to sync this up. And you'll be hearing from me talk a bit about Thomas Aquinas tonight. And Thomas Aquinas said love involves mutual indwelling, which he said is something of my mind being in your mind and something of your mind being in my mind. And my prayer is that's what happens between you and I, for the sake of the PowerPoint. Um, I agree, yeah. It alters our state of consciousness. Um, what are you doing, man? <laughs> we, we didn't... Okay, clearly we're, get, we're still trying. Um, I am, the first thing I want to say is I'm cognizant that in the aftermath... Of, you'll hear me say this later tonight. In the aftermath of a traumatic event... Um, The two greatest predictors of whether you go on to develop an intractable form of PTSD or you experience resilience and growth and recovery are two things. And these are the two things that are fundamental for trauma safety. Um, It's social connection. It's um, being surrounded by people because trauma is a fundamentally isolating experience. And it's empowerment and autonomy and agency. And to the end of setting the right tone, I want to just say um, I, this is not too much to overwhelm us. We can come together. We can draw near to each other. And our efforts are not futile. They're just not as much as we'd like to give in to that. I think it's important to set that tone early on with whatever's happening. Um, that we could draw together, I would invite you, my invitation to you would be to lean in tonight, uh, despite, I'm not going to talk about anything um, overly triggering or explicit or anything like that, but trauma as a topic just has that air about it. So my invitation to you is to be kind to yourself, to step out if you need. Um, Take care of yourself, always. You are in charge of you, but um, also my invitation would be to lean in even when it feels discomforting, just to lean in. Um, this book was conceived during the COVID pandemic by me and two other co-authors, both of whom are Anglican priests. One is an Anglican priest in um, the UK, in England, the other is in Australia. We had, what better can you do during COVID than have four-hour Zoom calls and write a book together? They're beautiful people, um, I really enjoyed the co-authoring process, and I'm here tonight presenting that, presenting that book. And could someone hold up a copy so people can see what it looks like? Thanks. It's that greenish, bluish hue, whatever the publishers picked for it. Um, tonight, rather than rehashing the whole argument of the book, I'm not interested in that. I don't want to rehash everything that's in the book. You can read it there. What I want to do is to draw out the most salient themes, what I think are the most important affirmations of the book. And I don't want to present them like we present them in the book. I want to present them with some examples and some things that are my favorite things in the whole world that there just wasn't space for. One of the challenges of a co-authored book is that it's co-authored. And tonight, I'd like for you to think tonight as, if the book is a DVD, these are the bonus features. That may be a really old reference. (laughs) But that's what my my '90s kid mind thinks of. Um, that's I want you to think of that tonight. That this is some entryway and access points into big themes of the book. My big thesis tonight, if I could convince you of one thing, it's that um, it's that I need to have the right slideshow presentation on with notes. It's called Presenter View. Now I can see my notes. My big idea tonight that I want you to take away is that um, trauma safety is possible in our churches. It's not as hard as you think it is. It's very possible and doable. I'm gonna be telling you that there are things you can do tomorrow in your family, in your church, in your community, that anyone can do tomorrow that will give you an instant trauma safety upgrade. This is doable and very possible and it's not complicated. It's taken me a long time to figure that out. and I want to suggest that if that trauma safety is going to have any staying power in our communities and churches, it's got to be rooted in our deepest convictions. And I'm going to suggest to you tonight that there is no more catalyzing Christian idea for empowering trauma safety and for it to stick than the doctrine of the Trinity. If God really is who we say we believe God is. And if our hands can match up with our head and our heart on that issue, um, we will be the most trauma safe kind of institution in the world. That would have to be the case. I want to sell you on that tonight. So, where we're going to go with this, and now I'm switching slides, so, meeting of the minds, thank you. <clears throat> we're going to go first i 'm going to talk about the Trinity and then I want to talk about trauma and recovery, and then I want to go to um creating trauma safe churches that 's that's our order of service so the first thing i 'm going to show you a picture oh you don 't have the uh oh you don 't have the um beautiful transitions like I have. Okay everyone, you'll have to imagine. You have to imagine that the one on the left came up first and none of that other stuff came up. These are three. I spent so much time on these transitions and the fade setting and all of this for nothing. It's all futile. Well, anyways, you can see, look at the look at the weird picture up on the left. It is one of my favorite. It's my least theologically favorite, my most artistically favorite rendering of the Trinity. This bizarre figure with sharing two eyes in the middle. Um, that's one way Christians have, a classic way Christians have tried to tried to image the Trinity. And you, you can see a triangle right there. And that triangle is a classic diagram of the Trinity taught in many undergraduate classes. Um, there's a pater on the left. You guys can see the triangle, right? With the dots on, on the edges. That triangle on the left-hand figure, it's pater on the left, top left, filius on the top right, spiritus sanctus on the bottom, and in the middle is the word deus for God. And there's an est, that line that says est, connects Father, Son, and Spirit to the God in the middle and non-est on the outside. It's a way of saying what we're saying when we say the Trinity. It seems to be a contradiction. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. But the Father is God and the Son is God. And the Spirit is God. There's one image. Another image you can barely see is one of the Father holding the dead body of Christ, and the dove is between the Father and the Son. It's a classic image you find in Trinitarian pictures in church history. It's the image of um, the Father holding up the Son at the cross, or holding up the Son in his death. It's a classic image. The trade-off with that image is you've got a picture of the father. And we usually resort, as Christians, historically to an, an old male, an often European male. On the right is a modern rendering of Rublev's Trinity icon by some, you guys know her name, I'm sure you've got her stuff. We have this picture up in our living room. It's three members. The son is the member on the very right, and the son has, is the only one with a staff that's coming over his shoulder, and that's because it's, the staff is to picture the cross lacerating his shoulder, and it extends downward into the world. And on the picture on the right, it's around a table that holds communion, the bread and the wine. And the invitation, the classic invitation of this picture is that we would enter in, that we are the fourth member at this table. You can see that, can't you? We are entering into. If you were to try to reconstruct a doctrine of the Trinity based on Christian art, you'd be very confused as to what Christians are trying to say. And what I want to sell you on tonight is that the Christian doctrine of the Trinity is really all about two things. That God is love and that we can know that love. God is love and we can know that love. We can know it. So now we're going to go to the next slide. To sell you on this, I want to give you a sampling of voices from the tradition. The first is John, who rested on Jesus' chest, who wrote the Gospel of John and, by church tradition, wrote the epistles 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. 1st John is one of the best books on trauma safety in the Bible. If you want a primer, a biblical primer on trauma safety, go read 1 John and think about the logic of what John is saying. I'll try to draw some connections toward the end. John says, God is love. Those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them. Notice John doesn't say, those who abide in God abide in love. He says, those who abide in love abide in God. That's threatening. That sounds great. Um, maybe we can discover God in the love of the world than pre-imposing what, what the love of God looks like. Skip 1,200 years later. The figure on the very right is Thomas Aquinas, who wrote, this is Aquinas' definition of love. Let's have a conversation, okay? Let's have a conversation with our dead friends. The one on the left says, God is love. The one on the right says, our question then is, what is love? What is this thing that God is? And Aquinas gives us an answer. Aquinas says, love desires the good of the beloved and union with the beloved. I want you guys to hold that in your mind. Will you do that for me? Hold that definition in your mind. Save it for later. Love is the good of the beloved. I desire your good and I desire to be with you. Union with the beloved. Thomas Aquinas describes it as a kind of mutual indwelling where I have something of you in me and you have something of me in you. If that's the case, if it's the case that God is love, and if it's the case that love is a dynamic lover-beloved situation, then that would have to mean that there's something that loves and something that is loved in God. You following that? If love is something that happens between two, then there would have to be a between ness in God, which means God couldn't be the Zeus figure with the Jesus sidekick that we've imagined growing up. So Augustine says, the father is the lover, the son is the beloved, the spirit is the bond of love between. Lover, beloved, and bond of love is who God is. So as a diagram, switching slides here, is how this works. I really wish we had the transitions. That would have made this so fun. Um, This is how it works. This is the economics of ultimate metaphysics according to Christian reality. The father loves the son. The love that the father gives to the son is the spirit. It's not the case that the father loves the son and then the spirit somehow fits into that. The loving of the son by the father is the spirit. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased and what happens at Jesus' baptism. As the voice speaks, a dove comes down. That is the love of the Father. The Father is the one, and by the way, this, the technical thing happening here is the doctrine of divine processions, if you want to know more about it. There's a logical ordering in God. Um, the Father is the one who knows how to perfectly love. The Son is the one who knows how to eternally be loved by God. He's the person whose identity, his, his innermost identity is to receive the love of the Father, to gaze longingly into the eyes of the Father, and then to offer it back to the Father. And what he offers to the Father is the spirit love given by the Father. Here's the logic of what, where I'm trying to get to. The first, these are three premises. By the way, you see the three little dots on the right arrow there? Those three little dots mean therefore in symbolic logic. So anyone who's nerding out with me, just enjoy that. Anytime You're going to see like three three little dots in this. That's symbolic logic. That means therefore. It follows. It must follow. You cannot love all alone, right? We all know this to be true. This is, this is our definition of pathology, is people who live all alone, who are shut up by themselves. They're, they've been robbed of the good of love. You can't love all by yourself. You've got to have someone to love that's not you. You can't love all alone, and if God is love, what would that mean? That God is not all alone. God is the least lonely person in the world. That would have to be true. If God is love, God would have to be the least lonely person ever. Which leads me on the next non-faded, beautifully slide to ask this question. This brings me to ask, I'm interested in this question, what was God doing before creation? This God, okay, what was God do? What was he up to before us, before he had us to think about and deal with? What was God up to? There's two answers you can give to this question. The answer on the left-hand column is the answer given by, expressly given, by the other great monotheisms, Judaism and Islam. They say that God is individual, one, Monadic. There's not multiplicity in God. There's this radical absolute unity in God. If it's the case that God is an individual, it would have to be the case that before the creation of the world, God was by God's self. Yeah? He didn't have anyone else. Which would mean that when he made the world, he had to learn a new skill. Right? Never had anyone to relate to before. So when God makes the world, he's got to learn how to relate, and in which case, love is learned by God. And it would also mean that God needs us to know what love is. If you are a psychology or counseling person, you're thinking of triangulation right now that the parent needs me to have the goods the parent has. On the other hand, it gives us a great answer as to why God made the world. I'm gonna tell you guys that Jews and Muslims have a better answer for creation than Christians in some ways. They've got a clear answer. Why did God make the world? So he could love. That's a cool answer. That's a satisfying, catalyzing answer. Christians disagree classically with this. Christians say that God is multiple, in which case love is not learned by God, love is shared by God. And in which case, God does not need us to be the love that God is. If God is triune, it doesn't depend on us. We are, if God is triune, if there's multiple lovers and beloveds in God, then we are not necessary we are better than necessary something better than being necessary can you imagine you and i can't imagine that because we root our whole identity in being necessary can you imagine if you really weren't needed how fun you could how much fun you could have you and i are going to die and when we die people are going to keep on keeping on we're not going to be here If I wasn't here tonight, as much as y'all love me, and I believe it when you say you love me, someone else would come and you would love them. And I need to learn to be okay with that because that's the kind of being I am. I'm a creature and anything else is me trying to be something I'm not. It's not good for me. I can't bear that existential weight. The happiest people are the people who embrace their own superfluity. It's a good thing. It's better than being necessary. It's being, um, better than being necessary is being, I had a good word in mind and I can't recall it now. Matt, forgive me. I need to catch up. (coughs) What would it be like to believe that God is not an individual but there is multiple of something in God that God has that he shares with us? I want to give you a sampling of An old dead friend of mine who, we all need our old dead friends, who took this to heart and said the following This is Catherine of Siena, a medieval spiritual writer. You, eternal God, saw me and knew me in yourself. And because you saw me in your light, you fell in love with your creature and drew her out of yourself and created her in your image and likeness. It's a weird idea, but it's a classically Christian idea that um, there's something more fundamental to me than my existence. It's a weird idea. Just try try to stay with me. There's something more fundamental to me than I am. It's that I'm wanted. She is the object of divine desire before she exists. And it's, Precisely the fact that she is the object of divine desire, divine love, that brings her into being. You catching that? God loves that which is not so that it will be. That's the Christian idea. Can you see how Trinity and creation are so intimately connected in Christian thought? If God is love, then God wants others to share in that love, not because he needs it, but because he's just so happy with himself that he makes things to share in it, which leads me to a more, well, we'll say it this way. This is what Catherine is really saying. God was a lover long before us, and therefore, God doesn't have to try hard to do it. Loving us is the most natural thing in the world for God. Now, at this point, some of you are having the reaction pretty much all my students at Richmond have, which is, I've got Students at Richmond who are coming to be counselors in training in the Bible Belt, and most of them are young, which means that most of them are turning to mental health to fix some of their faith gone bad. They're either deconstructing or they're doing mental health professionalism instead of deconstructing. It's one or the other, typically. And I tell them the basics. What I'm giving you right here is not intense. I am. If, if Christianity is a cup, a bug, mug of beer, I'm skimming the, the froth off the top here. All I give them is that, and their response to me is, "I'll give you a quote." One of my students told me, maybe last year, or a year and a half ago, she said, "Dr. Hill, this, what you're telling me." I was telling her this. Said, "What you're telling me makes me angry, because I've been raised as a Christian my whole life, and I've never heard any of this." And by the way, you guys, I've given you a figure from the Reformed, hailed in the Reformed tradition, Augustine. I've given you John, the Bible, and I've given you Aquinas, the angelic doctor of the Roman Catholic Church. They're all saying the same thing. Mere Christianity, just ecumenical, which is what I have to do at Richmond because we're not affiliated with any denomination. I have to just teach mere Christianity. And what you're saying at this point, some of you are having this reaction of this can't be true. This has got to be just your spin on it. Stay with me and lean in. Just lean in. Just hold out hope. Don't shut off desire just yet. It might just be true. And here's another proof, okay? I'll keep giving you voice on voice from the tradition. This is so small you can't see it, so I'll read it. figure on the right there is Richard of St. Victor. Richard of St. Victor, this is um, his argument for the Trinity from Love. Arguing an argument from the nature of love toward the fact that God must be triune. This is how he says it. So that the fullness of charity, that's an old Christian word for love, can occur in true divinity, it is necessary for a divine person not to lack the fellowship of a person of equal dignity and for that reason, a divine person. Love cannot be pleasant if it is not also mutual. Yes, of course. Yes, Richard, we're with you. Now we ask Richard, why the Spirit? Why can't you just have the Father and the Son doing their thing? Why do you need the Spirit? Here's Richard's answer. Some of you have heard this from me before. The proof of perfected charity is a willing sharing of the love that has been shown you. Love is properly said to exist when a third person is loved by two persons harmoniously and in community. And the affection of the two persons is fused into one affection by the flames of love for the third. Now the circle is complete. That's all, that's all you can do with love. All you can do with love is experience it and then give it. I am, okay. I keep doing that, and that's messing up the audio, I know. I think it's my glasses. If I take them off, it'll mess with it less, and your faces will be blurry. <laughs> what Richard is saying is, you guys ever have the experience of, um, I'll use the example I always use, Um, You see two people showing affection to each other in public. And it's a display. And it's a public display of that affection to each other. And our natural response is, yes. (laughs) Is that Sam? Thank you. That was such a good guttural noise. It's revulsion. It's get a room. It's, you know... And you kind of, why do we feel that way? Why do we feel that way, TMI? Why do we feel that way? Because our response is kind of like, I'm sorry I'm here. I'm, I'm sorry for my presence here. I know you guys have a good thing, and I'm sort of just being here, witnessing it is getting in the way. And Richard is saying God isn't like that. The love that God enjoys in God's self is not threatened by the existence of those outside of it. It wants to go outside of it to include others within it. And it finds its fulfillment and perfection by including others in the embrace. That is the spirit. So when God shares God's love with us, God is just doing what God has always been doing in the person of the spirit in eternity past. Not only is the love of God natural to God, but sharing the love of God is natural to God. God doesn't have to try hard. We just have a hard time receiving it. We get in our way. I think I'm supposed to switch slides now. If God is love and God wants to share that love, the question is, are we the kind of creatures that are capable of knowing that love? Can we know it? At this point, you might be thinking, good for God. What about us? The answer to whether we can share in it there are two answers you can give. One is yes, we can know that love. And this is why Christians hold to trinitarian doctrine. It's not because of some weird thing, it's not a divine math problem. We want to say God is triune, I'm sorry you guys. We want to say that God is triune because we want to say that we can know God's love. Trinitarianism says, I'm not going to get into it, but God is in God there are three persons and there's one essence. three some ones. not three some things and one something. and the something is love. so that what the sun has, the sun is not 33.3% of god. this breaks this breaks math, let's just name it. it breaks math. the sun is 100% of god. The Father is 100% of God. The Spirit is 100% of God, but they are somehow not each other. If we say yes to that, we can know God's love. That's classical Trinitarian doctrine. I find it helpful to think of the no answers. That helps me better understand the yes answer. So what does it mean to say, not so much, we can't really know God's love? These are two, I'm just going to pick two. Two classical Trinitarian heresies. One is called modalism The other's called tritheism. And we'll switch to the next slide because what I want to emphasize is that the top there, the spiritual question for all heresies, is how is this keeping me from knowing that God loves me? This is the question, and this is not my. I, I wish I could just convince you. I wish I could share with you some of my dead friends. This is not me spinning this, this is literally what the tradition says. Heresies are not heresies because powerful people disagreed with less powerful people. And heresies aren't being wrong or simple about your theology. Heresies are saying, I'm not interested in that, I want to start my own church. I'm not interested in participating in our communal understanding of the simplest, clearest access to knowing that God loves us. That's what heresies are about. The question then, let's not get into ecclesiastical history, but the question there is a heresy is a heresy if, if it keeps you from knowing God loves you. How do these heresies keep us from knowing that God loves us? First is modalism. Modalism says that the members of the Trinity are three modes of God. I've got the tragedy and comedy masks there for you because I like to think of this heresy as, I, I like things simple. So maskism ism that's how I think of it. That the Father isn't really someone that I can know. The Father is one mask of God. So God sometimes puts on the Father mask. Then sometimes God takes off that mask and puts on the Son mask. Sometimes takes that off and puts on the Spirit mask. God has different modes or different ways he appears in history. Why why does that matter? Why are we talking about that? Because some cults. That's true. Yes, that is very true. Some cults did use modalism and some cults used Trinitarianism um, back in the day. Um, but you're absolutely right. And those what those people believed is that God is masquerading with us, essentially. God's putting on a mask. So for me to look at Jesus is not to be looking at God. It's to be looking at God's mask. And if Jesus says... I love you, and my father loves you. All I really know is that the masks of God love me. I don't know that God loves me. It keeps me from knowing that God loves me. Can you imagine being married to your spouse if they always wore a mask? I think I saw a Dr. Phil episode about that once. The guy was wearing a Batman mask or something. <laughs> you guys with me so far? You following all this? Okay. That's modalism. Modalism, like, I don't care about it because people disagreed with other people about it. I don't care about that, personally. I care about it. Does it keep me from knowing God loves me? Yes. Tritheism also keeps me from knowing God loves me because tritheism says that um, the Trinity is sort of a get-together of like-minded individuals who have to sort of agree together. And I pictured something I experience often that I do not like about my life and job, well, no, go back, which is the uh, board meeting, the brainstorming. I don't like those meetings. They happen all the time. God's not like that. God's not three separate people getting together, deciding what they think about Preston. That's not what God is like. And when I look at Jesus and Jesus says, I love you, I'm not getting 33% of God that loves me. I'm getting 100% of God that loves me. Which does lead me to, and go to the next slide, one of my favorite theologians, the way he said it, T.F. Torrance, there is no God hidden behind the back of Jesus. Trinitarian doctrine, when carried to its logical conclusion, allows us to say this. When I look at Jesus, I see God, period. What I see is what I get. There's not a hidden, scary God. There's not a remainder of God left for me to get to know or figure out. The Father, in some sense, is bound by the dispositions of Jesus to humanity. The Father and the Spirit are involved The death of Jesus is the father's death of his son. And here's the, yeah, you can go to the next one. Here's the logical flow. God is love. God became human in Jesus. Therefore, to know Jesus is to know God's love. This is what Christians say at its most basic. And I've given you a sampling of biblical passages to show you I'm not just pulling this out of thin air, out of the tradition. This is right there hiding right underneath the pages of Scripture. We just get in our own way. God is love, 1 John 4. For in him the fullness of deity, the fullness of that God dwells bodily, Colossians says. And that ultimately allows the Johannine community to say in 1 John 1, we declare to you what was from the beginning. I'm going to read the full thing. First John 1, we declare to you what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. They're thinking about the, the hairy, smelly, sweaty Jesus as they're saying this. We declare to you what was from the beginning before creation. We have heard it, we've seen it, we've touched it. This life was revealed and we have seen it and testify to it and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard we also declare to you so that you also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. That's, that's the doctrine of the Trinity. God is love. We're carried up into that. Now, Let's take the turn we have to take. If God is love and we can know that love, why is it so hard to experience? Why is it so hard to experience that love? To answer that, I want to turn to my, one of my all-time heroes next to church fathers and Calvin is Judith Herman. I love her. I don't know if she'll love me when we see each other in the life of the world to come. She's still alive. Maybe we'll see each other here. I know I'll see her in the life of the world to come, I think. I'll like her. I hope she'll like me. I love her. This is what she says about an answer to my question in one of the best books you could ever read. The traumatic event challenges an ordinary person to become a theologian a philosopher, and a jurist. The survivor is called upon to articulate the values and beliefs that she once held and that the trauma destroyed. She stands mute before the emptiness of evil, feeling the insufficiency of any known system of explanation. Survivors of atrocity of every age and every culture come to a point in their testimony where all questions are reduced to one, spoken more in bewilderment than in outrage. Why? Why me? I didn't put that in there, but it says that. Why me? The answer is beyond human understanding. What Judith Herman gives us some access into here is that, on the next slide, trauma interrupts the experience of divine love. But if that's the case, then trauma care can help restore that experience. And in order to get at what it means to be trauma-safe, we've got to understand the thing we're being safe uh, from that interrupts our access to this experience of divine love. Let's, let's turn over the rock and look at it. See, there were so many good fades in here and good transitions. No, go back to the other one. This is, this is uh, I'll, I'll talk you through it even though we can't see it. This is the best definition of trauma I've ever seen in my life. It comes from Bessel van der Kolk. It's translucent there behind it. You can't see it, so I'll say it. Um, I, early on when I was doing all this, I tried to use, I've, I've tried out a bunch of different definitions of trauma, and I always get critiques from people for whatever reason because everyone's got an opinion about trauma. Everyone. No matter what they've read or studied, everyone's got an opinion or a story. I like to, like, not tell people because then they stop me and want to talk about everything. Um, I mean, I'm serious, just like in my life, like it just is easier to not tell people sometimes. But trauma, like I would always get these critiques and feedback, and then I finally stumbled on a definition that works, like it doesn't get as much critique. And I think it's because it's the most bare-bones, stripped-away definition from Bessel van der Kolk and Alexander McFarlane, an inescapably stressful event that overwhelms one's coping mechanisms. An inescapably stressful event that overwhelms one's coping mechanisms. That's the definition of trauma that seems to work. You can really operationalize that with a lot of different contexts. And I love about that definition, it shows the two-fold structure of every trauma. Every trauma has a threat, something that threatens you. It doesn't matter whether it's life threatening, whether it's sexual violence. It doesn't matter if it's a microaggression from a cultural perspective. It doesn't matter. What matters is the deeply subjective nature of it. You experience something as a threat, you feel powerless to change something about that threat. This is key. This is what distinguishes trauma from suffering. I remember as a kid falling down on my bike and falling into a bee's nest. And my mom's, it was a whitewater rafting trip. And my mom's friend, an older male, who was biking with me on this trail, my mom was a few ways down. And I remember the bicycle seat had a Mickey Mouse face on it. Like, I remember this detail about my life. Because it was so intense. That's how memory works. The more intense the memory, the more it's, you remember it and recall it, connect it with your sensations and your emotions. Memory is all about how you felt in your body and how you felt emotionally. The higher, the more, you, the more um, you remember it, the more memorable it is. The dude, I don't remember his name, he picked up my bike for me and said, run, Preston, run, and I took off. I can recall that memory to you in such clear and vivid detail. I'm not traumatized by it. I'm not triggered by it. I can recall it, I can tell it to you coherently. Do you know why? It's because there was a threat that I wasn't powerless. I took the hell off. I ran away from the bees, and that sense of agency kept me from any kind of traumatization. In a traumatic event, you're powerless to change it. You're in a situation of domestic violence. The perpetrator has groomed you, or you are in a combat zone, and you can't leave the war. Or someone does something that you are not in control of. Like take their own life. We have no control over people's choices sometimes. That powerless is terrifying to us. So there's the traumatic event and the post-traumatic stress. And I won't go into it in too much detail. It gets nerdy, but it works in the brain like this. This is called the theory of the triune brain. Um, There's the outer layer, the neocortex. That's where, that's all the things we use for logical deductive reasoning. It's the thing that makes checklists, that puts stuff on calendars. It's the part of our language that holds, um, part of our brain that holds language. It's the part of us that makes us different from animals. We literally have it, and other animals don't. The thing that we share in common with animals, especially mammals, is the orange, the limbic system. Sometimes it's called the mammalian brain. It's the part of us that's deeply social. It's the part of me that throughout this talk is looking around, that a very primitive part of me that's looking around and saying, there's a huge group with eyes on me. Are they for me or against me? That's that part of me, my mammalian brain. My amygdala is the part going, there are potential sources of danger, my hippocampus is saying, calm down. They're, they're here. They're here to hear you talk. It's okay. You're safe. The reptilian brain is just instinctual. It's the most ancient part of our brain. It's the part that um, allows you to breathe when you sleep. You don't have to think about it. It's the part that um, regulates your heartbeat. It's all the things that keep us going that we don't think about. What happens in trauma that you can't see here. Um, can you go back? Sorry about that, Matt. Is that the red part gets big and the green and the orange get small? That's what happens in trauma. The outer layers associated with growth, associated with metacognitive skills for socializing, for speaking, for thinking, for reasoning, for all the virtues that we hold, those shrink. And the parts that are based on survival, you're like an animal backed into a corner. Or you're like a a fight or flight, just instinctual, just the rage of the post-traumatic syndrome. Is this getting hyper, hyper aroused? But the top parts shrink. And so you can see on this next slide, this is a picture from Bruce Perry. Bruce Perry wrote, um, he's one of the canonized trauma experts in our culture, and he wrote that book with Oprah Winfrey, I think, Um, What Happens to You. He's a trauma expert. This is a study from 2002. These are to scale. These are two brains. The one on the left is a brain scan of a normal child, a three-year-old child. The one on the right is a brain scan of a three-year-old child undergoing extreme neglect. And I show you this to emphasize that, again, they are to scale. The one on the right is literally that much smaller than the one on the left. The term for that is cortical atrophy. The ventricles are more exposed the neocortex has shrunk. And I love simplifying this with the next slide. A great way to picture this, this is a great psychoeducational tool. This is something that children can know, something that trauma people use to communicate to children. Is, you can do it with me if you want. This is your, this is your brain, this is our brains right here. And this is the neocortex. What happens in trauma is this part. You flip your lid, freak out. And it's like your neocortex goes off, and you're just like a nerve that's just exposed, hyper-aroused, freaking out about everything. Wouldn't it be great if, like, in your church staff, if you were feeling overwhelmed, rather than trying to talk about it, you could just do like this (laughs) to people? Or instead of giving someone the finger in traffic... And these really are, this next slide, I find it a helpful acronym just to think about the symptoms of PTSD, the symptoms of the post-traumatic syndrome used with the acronym HAND, hyperarousal. Arousal, we mean, usually we associate that with sex. That's not what we're talking about here. Arouse just means the vamping up, the in-breath. It's all part of human life as we... We breathe in. Imagine jumping into a, um, a very cold body of water and your reflexes, you breathe in and tense up. You ever seen babies learn how to swim? You see their faces and they're just like, this is a hyperarousal. Hypoarousal is breathing out, relaxing. Um, the outbreath, the release, the anxiety and the depression. That's all of human life. What happens in trauma is that scale gets tipped to one side and it stays there, just stays ramped up all the time, hyperarousal. And as a result, survivors avoid reminders of the trauma that might trigger that state and exacerbate it. They're just like, look away, avoid names, avoid faces. They don't even know why, because it's not in the neocortex, remember? It's not the brain... It's not the language part. It's not the logical part. It's the instinctual part. It drives people crazy because they don't know why. They just know that they're doing it. They're avoiding the reminders. The numbness. Dissociation is the technical term here. The thousand-yard stare that combat survivors get. The glazed-over eyes. The numbing. The desouling. There's no vitality there anymore. And then the distressing intrusions that no matter how much you avoid reminders the flashbacks they just you are reminded of the trauma when you're not trying to You just have these intrusive thoughts these nightmares thoughts about people you love they just they come out of nowhere they're haunting and those are the symptoms the main symptoms of PTSD and the end result is that survivors feel like this they feel stuck in the past it's not the past for them it's happening right now. It feels right now like it felt then. They're not remembering. It's not a memory for them. It's present tense. They feel overwhelmed and betrayed by their bodies. They don't have words. The Broca's area responsible for language in the neocortex has shrunk. It's not that survivors have a hard time talking about their trauma. It's that they can't. This is a neurological Disabling. And they feel it now just like they felt it then, which leads to this vicious cycle of isolation. They feel alone, and they feel ashamed of the powerlessness of the situation. They feel ashamed that they were powerless to change it. Leads me to ask, turning to recovery, this question. How do we help restore and experience the divine love? How do we care for trauma? There are two things that you need, two things that you absolutely need. You'll never have trauma safety without these. You may need more than these, but you'll never have less than these. And you can't have one without the other. One without the other re-traumatizes. One without the other re-traumatizes. Don't do one. Don't you dare do one. Do both. Social support you surround, but you don't surround without giving them agency and autonomy. You give them space to choose, but you never leave. It's the hardest place in the world to stay with someone which is why we feel like it's impossible. It's not impossible, it's just uncomfortable to do it, to offer someone social support and empower them. This is how Judith Herman says it on the next slide. The core experiences of psychological trauma are disempowerment and disconnection from others. Recovery, therefore, is based upon empowerment of the survivor and the creation of new connections. Recovery can take place only in the context of relationships. It cannot occur in isolation. The first principle of recovery is the empowerment of the survivor. She must be the author and arbiter of her own recovery. Others may offer advice, support, assistance, affection, and care, but not cure. Many benevolent and well-intentioned attempts to assist the survivor founder because this fundamental principle of empowerment is not observed. No intervention that takes power away from the survivor can possibly foster her recovery, no matter how much it appears to be in her immediate best interest. I feel so good to, to read that. That's why I love her. And the next slide. Traumatic events destroy the sustaining bonds between individual and community. Those who have survived learn that their sense of self, of worth, of humanity depends upon a feeling of connection to others. The solidarity of a group provides the strongest protection against terror and despair and the strongest antidote to traumatic experience. Trauma isolates. The group recreates a sense of belonging. Trauma shames and stigmatizes. The group bears witness and affirms. Trauma degrades the victim. The group exalts her. Trauma dehumanizes the victim. The group restores her humanity. Early in the Vietnam War, veterans were starting to have post-traumatic symptoms from combat. They did what any of us would do. They took them off the battlefield. And the result was their post-traumatic symptoms got worse, not better. What they found is when they kept them on the battlefield with their unit, the camaraderie and the social support actually reduced the post-traumatic symptoms. Can you imagine that? Staying with the danger but having social support reduces the symptoms. The power of social support and the power of empowerment. So to compare these two on the next slide, trauma, these are the core dynamics. We we have to learn these. We have to get this. We can't afford to not get this anymore. Trauma means being threatened by violence and in the face of that, we offer safety and stabilization. You can't recover if you're still threatened. You can't recover if you're still threatened. Trauma means feeling powerless to escape, and therefore recovery will always involve empowering the individual. It has to be their choice, otherwise it'll re-traumatize. Trauma involves a shame for surviving. Trauma survivors feel, this is hard for us to get, but they feel deeply ashamed for the ways that they have survived. They feel ashamed of how they have adapted in the powerlessness. It feels shameful to be powerless, and it feels shameful to figure out how to keep going when you're powerless. We don't like sharing that with people. In the face of that, what we offer is testimony and witness to reduce the stigma. In the face of feeling isolated and ashamed, we have to offer social support and empower agency. Which leads me to this final question. I'm trying to be sensitive to time here. How do we create churches that are trauma safe? As I said earlier, trauma interrupts the experience of divine love. Trauma care can help restore that experience, which means that in the face of uh, feeling isolated and ashamed for powerlessness, we have to offer social support and empowerment. I think historically, maybe especially in the Bible Belt, we've been good at one and not the other. We, we're all for social support. We're not so much for empowering people's autonomy. For some reason, that's a threat to a lot of churches. If we can't do that, we're not going to be trauma safe. To whatever degree we're threatened by giving people power, we won't be as safe as we could. I'm not saying, I'm just laying out the math here. That's all I'm doing. I'm not prescribing it. If I was in charge, I would prescribe it. But I'm letting you know for your churches, this is the equation. You can be less trauma safe if you want, and it will mean being more authoritarian with your people. That's just a fact. It's a psychological fact. Do you remember that I asked you to keep Aquinas' definition of love in your head? Here's where we're pulling it back out. Love desires the good of the beloved, and union with the beloved. What I want to suggest is that the love that is God, the love that God is, not that God is, I hope you hear me tonight, God is not loving. God is not loving. God is love. Love is not a quality God has. Love is a reality God is. And the reality that God is is that in God there is this perfect reciprocity of desiring the good of the other and union with the other. And if that were true of God, and if we're made in the image and likeness of God, it would mean that social support is a kind of union with the traumatized beloved. It says, I don't want to be at a distance. I want to be in what you're in. I want to be close to you in it. And the good of the beloved says, I want what's good for you regardless of how good it is for me. That's hard. That's what empowerment is. Empowering another person is saying to them, I don't need for your goodness to match up with all my self-protective goodness as well. I let you go and I let you have your light of day. I don't need to control it. That's what empowerment is. It's not controlling, which really is just desiring someone's good irrespective of how it is to you. In the book, we say this on the next slide. We say that there are four principles of a trauma-safe church in the book. I'm skipping to the end. I was largely responsible. I don't know how it works with other co-authors, but we sort of like each person took a different chapter, or a different s- sections of chapters, and then we all came together and critiqued each other and rewrote together. That's sort of how we did it. I was responsible for the final section of the book, the final chapters on trauma-safe churches. So I think it's the best part of the book. And this is a summary of that part of the book. What we say in the book is that there are four principles of a trauma-safe church, and we say something pretty aggressive, but I think it's true. If you don't have these four principles you won't be a trauma-safe church. You just won't. If you're missing one of these, it won't be trauma-safe. We may need to add more to this list in the future. We're not saying this is um, sufficient. We're saying it's necessary. If your community or your church is missing one of these, it's hard for me to understand how it could be trauma-safe. The first is a trauma-safe church. We call it a Hippocratic church, a church that does no harm. The Hippocratic Oath is taken by medical professionals, and it says just this, above all, do no harm. This is sometimes called the principle of non-maleficence, not doing bad, but it's also the principle of beneficence, doing good. What does this really mean? I'm going to sketch these out and then we'll move to the next. The next slide is going to be about um, what to do. But doing no harm basically just means mandatory reporting, A, a, a mutual negotiation between spiritual authority and civil authority. Spiritual leaders are scared of losing their power, oftentimes to the state. That's not going to work if we want to be trauma safe. I want to be really clear here. I'm not prescribing things for churches. I'm just laying out the math of how it works. It means public, this is what we say in the book. I'll stop apologizing for myself and just say what we say in the book. We say that the first principle, Hippocratic Church, means publicly addressing allegations. Publicly addressing allegations of leaders having committed harm. And we think that we should publicly address allegations against leaders because safety is more important than the reputation or finances of our institution. The safety of our members is always more important. If we have a value that is greater than the safety of our members, then there is something that we value above the principle of non-maleficence. So be honest about it. If your institution values public image above safety of members that's okay just say that don't then go over here and say we value everyone's safety just be honest about it make your choice make your bed and sleep in it these are hard words so i'm just going to share them with you okay i just feel like we've tried everything else and it hasn't worked so let's try something different now the usual response we get back to this is won't that hurt our public witness that's going to hurt our witness if we're honest with the world about airing our dirty laundry that our leaders are failing. And what we say to that is that's a great answer. It's just not what Jesus said. It's it's great wisdom. It really is. It's just not what Jesus said. Jesus said very clearly in John 13, they'll know that you're my disciples how by our love. What is love? Let's say you don't want to follow me and following Aquinas. What is love? Well, 1 John 1 and 3 says, how does the love of God abide in you if someone is in need and you don't offer help? So the world will be- here's the equation, right? The world will believe if they see the love of God in us. And the love of God in us is helping those in need. So if we stand up for people, that are suffering in silence? According to Scripture, it'll help our witness, not hurt. Now, let me ask you this question. If you knew a church that was very anxious about its image versus a church that was honest about where its leaders were at, which one would you want to be a part of? It's obvious, right? This, isn't, this is not rocket science. We just get in our way. The second principle is listening to survivors, offering compassionate witness, Survivors need to tell their story. They need to break the silence and secrecy, alleviate shame. It feels vulnerable and risky, but you cannot heal what you have not named. You cannot heal what you have not named. This means, we think, having guided, structured groups that have rapport, where the trauma story can be shared. Churches should not replace mental health professionals. They shouldn't replace support groups, but they should do the same goodness that happens in those groups as is appropriate to the church context i think the most um the most um risky piece of advice we offer in this section is saying that we should believe survivors that's a whole thing everyone has an opinion about we think that you should always believe survivors and act accordingly and we think that because, imagine this analogy that someone throws a frisbee at my face and says, hey, Preston, think fast. And what do I do? I cover my face. I, I get protected. Now, what if they are kidding with me and their effort is to humiliate me and draw humor from that, that I cowered even though there was no threat? You know what I mean, this experience? Am I still glad I covered my face? Yes, because I would have been protected, Right. It's the same here. Um, It's always better to be safe than sorry. Believing survivors when they accuse someone of harm doesn't mean you take it as gospel and it's just the truth. It means that you act with the information you have until you find out otherwise. Act with the information we have rather than until we find out otherwise. We think that trauma-safe churches never value the freedom of one over the safety of another. This is still in point number two. Trauma stage churches never value the freedom of one individual over the safety of another. In other words, we're more worried about someone's safety if they've said something than we are about the pastor's mobility to go and be a leader and sell books or do conferences or whatever. You guys tracking with this? Third one empowering restorative action. This comes from a A a principle called restorative practice. Restorative practice has been used internationally for peacemaking. It's been used in war contexts in Africa. It's a fundamental simple principle. It's that you do something with someone, not to them or for them. That we come alongside, and we're not here to, "I'm, I'm the doctor, and I'm the healer, and you're the wounded. That reinforces the stigmatized identity, and it reinforces the powerlessness. Trauma-safe churches come to survivors and say, "How can I join you? Join you on your journey of healing. What can I do with you, not to you or for you?" The fourth one is blessing and engaging the body. As I said earlier from neurobiology and the brain, the body keeps the score of trauma. Survivors are stuck in their bodies. And the answer is twofold. We need to create bodily safety. People will never, never um, engage trauma recovery if they don't feel safe in their bodies. They just won't. Another great quote from Judith Herman, safety begins trauma, recovery begins with safety, and safety begins with the body. Recovery begins with safety, safety begins with the body. Survivors are hyper-aroused in their bodies. They need to be soothed. But you know what? Being soothed is not enough one of the medications we used to give for PTSD is benzodiazepines, and they are a way of calming the nervous system. ends up making symptoms a lot worse if all you do is calm, because it ends up feeling like the powerlessness of the trauma, and it's re-traumatizing. So survivors don't just need a velvet glove, they also need, as Judith Herman says, a space where they can learn to fight again. space where you can get the blood pumping, where you can do now what you couldn't do then when you were frozen. And what church do you know of that is a place where people are invited to get the blood pumping? And I don't just mean charismatic worship. (laughs) That's good. And that saved, honestly, it saved so much for me. Going to a charismatic church reduced my post-traumatic symptoms in childhood 100%. I know that. I'm thankful to God for it. I'm thankful to God for the baptism of the Holy Spirit not for the theology, but for the trauma recovery. That's not all I'm talking about. I'm talking about churches where socially people are invited to feel the exhilarating thrill of their own autonomy. It is exhilarating to know I make a difference in the world. Churches are typically not the place where we go to do that, and that may be why survivors don't typically feel safe. So we'll get to the next page, and I'm almost done here, you guys. This is the equation. This is me drawing together the threads of what we've been arguing for. Divine love is at the heart. Divine love, as Aquinas said, is the good of the beloved and union with the beloved. And if we go around the circle of do no harm, listen and believe, empower healing, empower people, and then bless the body. You can't see the highlighted parts, but in the slide, I ended up highlighting the top and the bottom. Do no harm and empower healing the good of the beloved. It is for their good that we do not do harm. It is for your good that I empower you. And union with the beloved is blessing the body, drawing close and listening and believing. I really do think these are the orientations. So, how can you get an upgrade today? How can you get trauma safe? Here's here's just a quick list. This is a sample of some of the things we say in the book, ways that churches can begin Becoming trauma safe. Clarify and advertise your mandatory reporting. Let the world know that you're not afraid of civil authority, but that you welcome it. Mandatory reporting, if you all don't know, means that you can be held liable for witnessing a crime and then not reporting it. That it is illegal to witness abuse and not report it. I don't know if you knew that. A lot of people don't know that. It is our civil responsibility. Um, trauma-safe spiritual leaders are not threatened by civil authority that, that ensures people's safety. I, I am on a team that's currently helping to rewrite the our policy in the ADOTs in our diocese because it's not clear and it's not advertised as well as it should be. Ask yourself in your church, if you needed to report something, who would you go to? What would be the process? My guess is most of you don't know the answer to that. We need to know the answer to that. Always two adults with children. Never one adult alone with a child. It's not because we don't trust each other. It's because we're trying to bear witness to the world that the love of God is in us. Child safety signs. When a, when a perpetrator comes to a church and they see signs on the bathroom door, they're just less likely <laughs> to harm someone. Appoint third-party safety advocates. In other words, if your pastor is the one hurting you, you don't have to go to your pastor. Or if your pastor's hurting you, you don't have to go to your pastor's pastor friend. You have someone in the church who is a designated person you can speak with. Teach good forgiveness theology. For example, that forgiveness is, let's just go ahead and get rid of all the bad forgiveness theology. Forgiveness is not reconciliation. Forgiveness does not require the repentance of the wrongdoer. Forgiveness is not foregoing the claims of justice. Have some survivor-led support groups. Have some survivor-led ministry. In other words, letting traumatized individuals know that you don't see them as stigmatized and powerless and defective. You see them as capable. You see them as capable of being a conduit for the glory of God as the pastor who has the right words and the put-together face and voice. Liturgies of lament, grief, and loss. That's kind of obvious. Survivors, in my experience, find it very helpful to be told what to do with their body because they don't know what to do with their body. Liturgies are helpful. Give them the words to say when they don't have words. I want to conclude. I'm sorry for how long I'm taking you all. I want to conclude. This is the very end. Turn to Martin Luther. The quote on the right is what Martin Luther said at the dawn of the Reformation. This is how he ended his letter to the Christian nobility. And for me, it's evidence of what I believe to be true about the Reformation, that the Reformation was not about justification by faith. The Reformation was not about, um, you guys hear me, obviously it was about that. But what I mean is that's not what catalyzed Luther. What catalyzed Luther wasn't that people were teaching bad theology. It was that people were scaring the hell into other people so that the church could get money. He was upset about spiritual abuse. He thought if the Pope knew what they were doing over here in Germany, he would stop it. There's no way my Holy Father knows. (laughs) You know, Luther talking about the Pope. He was a Catholic before he became a reformer. Luther ended when he realized the Pope did know, and this was just spiritual abuse was happening. He said this, in his call to arms for greater justice, he said, no one in Christendom has any authority to do harm or to forbid others to prevent harm from being done. No one in Christendom has any authority to forbid, to forbid you from preventing harm for others. Because if one member suffers, we all suffer. And if one rejoices, we all rejoice. Our lack of trauma safety will eventually come back to bite us, and I think that's what's happening right now. Here are my questions for the future, some things I'm interested in. Maybe this will be helpful for Q&A. These are my, like, post-this-book areas of research interest right now. What about religious trauma, church hurt, and spiritual abuse? Not just trauma, the church responding to trauma, but the church being a source of trauma. How do we help with faith deconstruction? Not, how do we fix it? Not, how do we help people with these spiritual desires that people have who don't fit? They just don't fit into our existing frameworks. How do we help people with those desires? The book's out there for sale for 25. It's usually 30. I had to buy my own copies. Publishers make authors buy their own copies. All I'm looking to do is break even because I really believe I spent $500 getting these books so I could sell them here. Cause I believe in this, that I, I believe in this. Um, so they're out there. I think there's a QR code. Chesney knows about it. Thank you. Chesney for making the QR code. I don't know what a QR or Venmo is. I really don't know how to use Venmo, but my Venmo is out there. And um, thank y'all so much. I'm really gratified. I really appreciate you coming out to this. And I think pastor Matt's going to have more for what's next. So thank you all.